Excuse me, class. 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 Shut up! Welcome back, passionate minds and avid learners. You're stepping into the classroom of Edurant, and I'm your host, David the educator with a penchant for unpacking the complexities of the education world. Today, we're diving deep into my thoughts on standardized testing. We're about to dissect this hot-button issue, and you're in for a ride through the twists, turns, and perhaps a few detours of my unfiltered thoughts. In this episode, we'll dive into a recent personal experience of the absurd expectations we as teachers face, the portrayal of teachers in the media, both the positive and the negative depictions, and wade through the turbulent waters of standardized testing. If I get too negative, maybe I'll throw in an uplifting story. So buckle up again for an educational odyssey as we navigate the complex currents of educational discourse, aiming to unveil valuable insights and perhaps a few hidden treasures. Let's chart a course through the seas of data, separating rhetoric from reality, promises from practices, and, of course, indulging in a good old-fashioned rant. Class is in session, and today's subject is standardized testing. I wasn't originally going to discuss this, as I'd already outlined the episode and was getting ready to record, but it's been weighing on my mind, so I'm throwing it in the mix in a bonus segment that I'm calling Professional Development Dilemmas. Imagine for a second you're a police officer, and your department's been promoting a voluntary 20 to 24 hour training session. They highlight the benefits, the skill enhancements. It would keep you safe. It would help you do your job better. Of course, as an officer, you express interest. And during the sign up, they maintain that this is going to be 20 to 24 hours of in person training and your guaranteed compensation. So you go about your job day to day. And this training just keeps getting closer and closer and closer. Finally, the day arrives. You log into an online account to just verify you have all the materials you need, and, and there you see attention. This training will consist of an additional, wait for it, 64 to 80 hours of online coursework. And it's a requirement if you want to do the 20 to 24 hours in person. Okay, so far, not, not too big of a deal, right? You keep reading down and you're going, well, I, I know how I could spend an additional 60 to 84 hours of work. It's at my own pace. I, I can make this work. But then they drop the other shoe. By the way, this is without compensation. They want you to sacrifice 64 to 80 hours of your time without paying you. Now, organizers, organizers of this training, you know, they, they use guilt to convince these officers, hey, you, you should be grateful for this opportunity for these 24 additional hours of pay. It's going to help you do your job better. We just... We just really can't afford it. You know, the budget is strapped. We, we can't afford to pay you for the complete, you know, 100 hours that this training costs. 
but we'll make sure you get paid for at least that 20 to 24 hours if you do that additional 64 to 80. Now, I'm pretty sure that the police would have collectively stood up, told them to fuck right off, and walked out the door. At least the ones that I know would have. Now, this hypothetical seems outlandish, but this is exactly what our school district did. This is the type of bullshit we deal with in education. A predatory professional development system. Deceitful bait-and-switch tactics. Now, I'm going to be speaking in generalities, but I'll stand by them. In general, teachers are pretty caring people who tend to let their empathy and emotions impact their actions. They also tend to be willing to sacrifice for their students emotionally and financially, amongst other ways. Well, at least until they get old and jaded like me. The upper levels of administration know this. And I'll go a step further and say that they don't just know this. They exploit this to save money. You will never convince me that as an upper-level school administrator, you had no idea that the overall coursework for this training was 84 to 100 hours when you offered to pay us for the 20-hour portion. You conveniently left out mentioning that additional workload. The probability that this was an innocent oversight is beyond minuscule. I, mean, I suppose that a, a snowball could be surviving in a walk-in freezer in, in the absolute pits of hell. Theoretically, I guess it's possible, but I'm pretty sure that they don't get electric service there to power the compressor in the freezer. So, no. There is a snowball's chance in hell that this wasn't intentional. They knew exactly what they were doing. You bait in the teachers with the promise of extra pay because they know how badly we are underpaid. They know teachers always need more money to pay for their kids' activities, birthday presents, hell, even supplies for their classrooms, and maybe to even treat themselves to something they enjoy. The idea of not living paycheck to paycheck for one month will ensure that teachers flock to this opportunity. Once signed up, though, let's just... Simply switch out the work expectations to a completely unreasonable level. Let's go ahead and cross off that initial 20 to 24 hours we told them, and instead say 84 to, you know, maybe over 100. Perfect. Now, there's probably going to be some complaints, but if they do, we're going to tell them that they are lucky we are paying them at all. And definitely, we're not going to tell them we're going to leave out the part where other districts are giving their educators contract time to complete the additional coursework. Insist that they only utilize their personal time. And let's phrase it in a way that implies they should be darn grateful for that opportunity. Incredible, isn't it? Who in their right mind thinks that treating their employees like this is acceptable in any way, shape, or form? Why should I give you, my employer, a week and a half of my time without compensation? You don't own me. You pay me to do a job. If you overpay me to do that job, you demand I give you the money back. But hell, I should just give you my time? Seriously, does this really need to be said? 
We get enough grief from students and parents to have to deal with shit like this from within our own ranks. If you want us to do the training, pay us to do the damn training. Anyway, we'll see how this plays out. Our union, which is absolutely worthless, and that's a topic for a different day, was contacted and is apparently looking into it. I won't hold my breath. I have a feeling the majority of these participants are going to back out, and I really, really hope they do. Because I'm sure it would look absolutely amazing for our district to have a 0% participation rate in the program that our governor is supportive of. All right, I'm going to take a few deep breaths and move on to our first segment. Today's official first segment is a new one that I'm calling Educators Exposed. We're going to dive into a rather unique story that highlights the evolving landscape of teachers' professional lives and the challenges that we face in the modern world. An Austrian elementary school teacher found herself in a rather strange situation. Well, she didn't necessarily just find herself there, she created it, but it is definitely unique. She was fired over having a side hustle. A teacher with a side hustle. Okay, so that's not unique. Most teachers I know have a gig on the side to supplement their income. You know, some do seasonal construction work, some work a retail job in the evenings, some sell some pyramid scheme product or another, and others work as a love coach. At least this teacher in Austria does. Apparently, she is known as, wait for it, the Orgasm Pope. Now, I'm not sure what qualifies her to that title. I'm pretty sure the Catholic Church doesn't sanction that one, but hold off on trying to figure it out just yet. This 47-year-old teacher turned love coach took to platforms like TikTok and Facebook to promote her services, promising an explosive sex life with multiple orgasms. Yes, you heard that right. Customers could pay for access to her motivational sessions via Zoom. And this created a rather unconventional dual career. Now, fast forward to the holiday season. And just before Christmas, the school board dropped the hammer, asking her to make a choice between her offline teaching gig and her online love coaching venture. Keep in mind that the teacher had never appeared nude. Uh, she wasn't making adult videos and selling them. From what I've gathered in the article and, and reading some other places, she was giving sexual advice and was fired for it. Now, the school board defended its decision, stating that public confidence in the teacher's ability to carry out her official duties had eroded. The teacher, on the other hand, claims innocence, asserting that she hadn't done anything illegal, she'd never appeared nude online, and now she's taking the matter to court. Now, why are we talking about this? It's not just a quirky story. It's a reflection of a broader trend where teachers, both in the U.S. and worldwide, are exploring alternative sources of income. In the U.S., we've seen cases of teachers turning to controversial side jobs to supplement their salaries. A teacher in Missouri was recently fired for maintaining an OnlyFans account. In 2022, teachers in Arizona lost their jobs after filming explicit videos on school property for their OnlyFans account. It begs the question, why are teachers increasingly drawn to unconventional side hustles, and what does it say about our society's approach to education and educators? Why are teachers doing this? In my experience, people don't just wake up one day and say, wow, sex work sounds great. 
it's not a career field that I've heard people actively work towards. I see lots of students who want to be police officers, firefighters, veterinarians, construction workers, farmers, or professional athletes, but never something in that field. I haven't met an adult that was preparing for college and figuring out life that said, I can't wait to go to Harvard and get my PhD in banging people. Something pushed these people to make these decisions. This is not an attempt to shame anyone or denigrate them for life choices. Hell, they're making way better money than I am. This is simply a commentary on our societal values. Gee, could it be that salary is involved in these decisions? Teachers make so little money that they are literally accepting the fact that they have to create and sell their own pornographic material. They have to look for adult entrepreneurial endeavors to pay bills and have a comfortable living. Okay, so why adult videos though? Why not go work at a store? Why not deliver pizza? Why not be a podcaster? The teacher that was recently fired in Missouri had a salary of $42,000 a year as a public school teacher. She made, through her OnlyFans account, eight to $10,000 a month. That is a salary of $96,000 to $120,000 a year. That is over double her teaching salary. She went from having to budget for a cup of coffee in the morning to being able to comfortably provide her grade-level colleagues with coffee every day. According to her, she tried to keep it low-key and fly under the radar. I am assuming there wasn't a lot of advertising involved in her business model, and that changed since the news media generously donated airtime. I can only imagine that her customer base has increased dramatically. With all the media attention she received upon her being placed on leave and eventually resigning her teaching position, her side hustle business had to have improved. Now, I really can't blame her. It would be hard to turn down that amount of money for an honest day's work. So, let's check. Just a second here. Oh, holy smokes. Okay, so, according to what I'm reading here, she's earned about a million dollars this year. Holy crap. She graduated into the I-can-buy-a-coffee-shop franchise tax bracket in a year. She's not the only one, apparently, a couple of years ago. A couple who were both teachers got caught creating content, um, <clears throat> adult videos, on school property. Yeah, definitely not okay. And I can honestly say that the thought of having adult interaction on that level in my classroom has never crossed my mind. I don't even use my district-provided laptop for personal matters. Definitely not for a side hustle. But they also made close to a million dollars that year. It's basic economics, folks. Supply and demand. Demand for adult videos allows educators to make a million dollars. But demand for their expertise in education is only worth $42,000 a year. What the hell is wrong with us as a society? We have a teacher shortage in the United States. A teacher shortage that isn't going to end anytime soon. Despite efforts to lower certification standards, streamline non-traditional students that are interested in the classroom, and other efforts at attracting new hires, the problem persists. It's not getting any better. Why is that? Well, 
It's a career field where you are overwhelmed with unreasonable levels of work, expectations, mistreated by parents, students, administrators, and paid a wage that you can't afford a comfortable life. The real question we should be asking is, why aren't more teachers fleeing, or when will they? Is it surprising that we are increasingly desperate for additional income in any form that it takes? We have our own children and families who we need to provide for. We have bills we need to pay, and the cost of living just keeps going up and up, yet salaries haven't. In an article put out today, uh, put out by NEA Today, titled, Teacher Salaries Not Keeping Up With Inflation, teachers are making less than they did a decade ago. I quote, Average teacher pay has failed to keep up with inflation over the past decade. Adjusted for inflation, teachers are making $3,644 less than they did a decade ago. Now, I think they were underpaid a decade ago, and I don't know about you, but I recall things being a hell of a lot cheaper a decade ago. So things are more expensive, and our pay isn't keeping up with it. Now, why should we invest in, in higher teacher pay? Well, research shows that increased teacher pay results in improved teacher retention. Hmm. Gains in student performance. Yep, motivated teachers would do that. A larger percentage of high-achieving college students taking courses in education. You mean when, when you pay a profession, like a profession, and treat it as a profession, that high-achieving individuals are interested? I'm shocked. It also results in an increased likelihood of hiring teachers who earned top scores on their educator certification exams. You mean that people who are getting into a career field want to work for the place that pays them the most? Holy crap, I didn't... But what does our society do? Nothing. So much nothing that teachers turn to only fans to subsidize their ability to stay in the classroom. Well, unless they get so damn rich doing it that they leave or are caught and fired. I guess we just better accept that we are society's indentured servants. Take our meager pay, babysit kids, shut up and be thankful. At least, that's the message many of us feel like we are being sent. All right there, rant sounding boards. Let's move on to our soapbox segment, where we dive deep into the ever-evolving world of education. Today's adventure takes us through the history and impact of standardized testing. Now, before we set sail, let's wade through the historical waters of education. Back in the colonial days, education was a local affair, managed by communities and religious groups, but in the 1830s, Horace Mann entered the scene. He is often dubbed the father of American education, and he ignited the common school movement. Mann envisioned a universal, free education funded by local taxes, a common vision that spread like wildfire, quite honestly. Compulsory education laws emerged, and the role of state-level officials began to crystallize. These architects of education standardized curricula, set up teacher training programs, and enforced attendance laws. Now fast forward through the 19th century to the early 20th. 
where education saw another transformation. The OG educational consultants like John Dewey advocated for child development-focused education. Now, he's not to be confused with the Melvin Dewey, the American librarian who devised the Dewey Decimal System to organize books. If you don't know what the Dewey Decimal System is, you need to head straight to your nearest public library and beg them to teach you. Seriously, go. Anyway, teaching became a recognized profession, complete with certification requirements and teacher colleges. But here's the plot twist. There were minimal federal mandates at this point, as education wasn't a power granted to the federal government, and I would argue really still isn't. Education was developing without a strong central government. I'm not convinced the absence of a central government department guiding it was a bad thing. The pivotal year, 1954, brought us Brown versus the Board of Education, shattering the absolutely fucking ridiculous practice of segregation in public schools. This ruling corrected an injustice and further affirmed what our Declaration of Independence so boldly states. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This ruling opened the floodgates to increased federal oversight. They had to make sure that segregation was gone. And most of us understood this. But now let's hit the swinging 60s and enter Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society. His vision aimed to end unfair treatment based on race. Good goal. And he wanted to enhance education. Okay, sounds good. He wanted to create a fair and equal nation. Now, most agreed at the time then, and, and even now, that this was a great goal. But not everyone agreed on how to get there. While initially a hit, the Great Society faced growing concerns within just a few short years. Critics highlighted the significant costs that were largely unfunded, they were concerned with government overreach being, as this was in no way tied to the enumerated powers granted in the U.S. Constitution, and it took some legalese to justify it. They also cited the fear of unintended consequences such as increased numbers of people developing a dependency on government, and a fear that it would worsen the civil unrest of that time frame. Yet it marked a turning point. The first time the federal government asserted control over education. So flash forward again to 1979, and the U.S. Department of Education takes center stage, shaping educational policies, thrusting education into the center stage of most presidential candidates' platforms. Now, politicians realized that they could win votes by coming up with the next solution to our education woes, and they set out to do so in ways that sounded really good to the public. But like the Great Society plan, it lacked funding. If you didn't know, politicians are pretty terrible at keeping promises after being elected. It sounds really good to say, I will fix education by... and then just fill in the blank. 
voters turn out and elect them. Their motivation is gone at this point. And then they shift their attention to, Oh, look how much tax money I saved you. Vote for me again. They want to keep their power. Wheels are spinning, but they are fueled by empty promises and misguided solutions. Now, speaking of misguided or just plain stupid, the No Child Left Behind Act of 2002 became a bipartisan effort to improve education standards and hold schools accountable. Who the fuck thought we could get 100% proficiency in math and reading? Seriously. This is the generation that was smoking and drinking during pregnancy like Congress was going to ratify another prohibition amendment and they had to single-handedly dispose of all the booze. You think those poor children who suffered cognitive damage were going to be able, capable, of that goal? Yet, you know, you held us to it because it sounded good in a soundbite. Now imagine working at a school that had 97% proficiency and the remaining non-proficient students all had severe cognitive disabilities. Well, you didn't meet your AYP, so you are a failing school. That is the reality of what we faced at the time. People were stressed. They were working their tails off like they always do to teach kids to read and do math. But there were punishments and consequences being handed out because of the unrealistic expectations. Now, maybe this is just me being jaded, but that's the thing with politicians is they don't care about the logistics of accomplishing a goal. They only care about the optics. And 100% proficient was really good optics. They honestly, I don't, I don't think that's just me being jaded. According to a recent Gallup poll, only 32% of Americans have a great deal or even a fair amount of trust in Congress. So am I jaded if 68% of my fellow citizens don't trust them? Or is it just normal? Or is it both? Okay, anyway, what is a No Child Left Behind Act? Picture a big school rule book called NCLB Act. It just was a set of rules and expectations and a list of, of consequences and punishments that aimed to ensure every single student succeeded. And they focused specifically on reading and math tests. Standardized tests. It required that schools bring 100% of their students to proficiency by the year 2014, or they go through a series of punitive steps. No exceptions. Have a traumatic brain injury that is a permanent disability, leaving you at the functional level of a toddler? You better be able to score proficient on a grade-level standardized test in both reading and math, or your school loses funding. Schools were frantic. They did everything that they could to accomplish that blatantly impossible goal. But here's the catch. Schools sometimes get a bit too focused. They began to sacrifice other subjects that weren't tested because we really needed to improve our reading and math. Science? History? Eh, they're not tested. The arts? Eh, you know what? We don't really need those. They're not tested. It became a matter of priorities. Now, thank God that train wreck piece of legislation was replaced. Enter the 
every student succeeds. Ooh, that's a tongue twister. Every Student Succeeds Act, ESSA, in 2015. It maintained a focus on equity, but had increased flexibility. It wanted and wants to ensure that all students will have access to a quality education, and it provides federal funding to support state and local efforts to improve those educational outcomes. Now, let's, let's take a look at the pros and cons. Increased flexibility which is a more, I guess, holistic approach, and it encourages local stakeholder input, which are definite pros. You want your community buying in to your educational goals because if they support it, it has a higher chance of success. But assessing accountability is still challenging due to different standards of success. What my state counts as success is going to be different than a neighboring state, than a state on the other side of the country. We're looking at apple to oranges statistics that are used to compare states' levels of success. So today, standardized test data still dictates educational priorities, much as it did under No Child Left Behind. We're facing issues. We're priority, prioritizing memorization to demonstrate improvement on a standardized test. We're teaching to a test. It happens all the time. The assessment scope is still limited. Now it's including science along with reading and math, but it doesn't measure things like study skills, work ethic, or critical thinking. And high stakes testing puts undue stress on students and staff alike. One study I was reading found that the chemical marker for stress cortisol rose anywhere from 15 to 35% when students were taking a standardized test or presented with taking a standardized test. Cortisol inhibits concentration. Students' brains were essentially shutting down during testing. Anxiety, sleeplessness, and mood swings are all symptoms associated with stress due to high-stakes tests. Anxiety among younger elementary students is at a level that I haven't seen before in my career, and I truly believe it is caused by this toxic educational system that is set up and run by politicians. Teaching to the test narrows the curriculum. We focus on only tested subjects, and by doing so, we limit the richness of the educational experience. Students are being robbed of thematic units and problem-solving and other conceptual-based activities in lieu of memorizing these certain facts. Students bear the brunt with increased stress, anxiety, and potential long-term impacts on mental health. Now, don't get me wrong, memorization is important, and in some situations, I think it's underserved in education, and we can talk about that in another episode. However, the general curriculum is focused on memorization of facts. For teachers, the impact extends into evaluations and job security. The data from standardized tests is tied to teacher evaluations. These affect our career field, and, and they're coupled with school funding, which creates a very challenging landscape. At a glance, this seems like a decent idea, a concrete system to evaluate a teacher's effectiveness. Yet the devil is in the details. 
not all classes are the same, and not all students are the same. I am convinced, after many years in my building, that class dynamics have been weaponized against teachers. Does your administrator go out for beers with you? Well, you just might end up with the so-called gifted students and motivated learners. Your data is going to look flat amazing, almost no matter what you do. You could just simply sit at your desk and throw worksheets at them. Heck, you could hang a hammock in the corner, hold a cocktail in hand, and throw those in the air and say, pick them up and do them, and those little learners would still thrive. However, do you maintain a professional relationship and distance with your administrator? And you're not afraid to voice your true thoughts during a meeting? Well, you're probably going to end up with all those struggling learners, IEP students, and behavior issues. It's much harder to show that level of improvement. Your data is definitely going to suffer. Is that because you're a bad teacher? Or is it because of a vindictive administrator? The same one doing your evaluation. Again, might sound like a hypothetical, but considering that half of all teachers feel unsupported by their administrator, based on my personal knowledge of eerily similar situations, and the many conversations I've had with colleagues that say they're in similar situations, I'd argue it's a lot more common than we want to admit. Now, add on student absenteeism. I can't control that. Student food security. I can't control that either. Family insecurity. No control from me over that. And numerous other factors outside of a teacher's control. And this approach is simply too flawed to justify. Now picture this. A balanced mix of multiple testing types and grades derived from the entirety of classwork. No more reliance on the pressure of a single test. We're talking about a truly holistic evaluation. This would more accurately prove student learning, but it is a heck of a lot harder to compare teachers with, and much harder to derive neat little facts for political press releases, so we don't even think about it. It's time for us to break free from the shackles of test scores. Instead, let's nurture critical thinking, foster creativity, and cultivate life skills. Education is about more than memorization. It's about empowering minds. This simplistic view of education, brought about by standardized tests, has resulted in a diminished work ethic among students. The basic philosophy behind laws like NCLB and even ESSA, ESSA, have infected educational leadership, educational curriculum companies, and more, resulting in tragic practices that will have long-term negative consequences. Consequences that are already visible if you're just willing to take a deep look. Classwork is no longer factored into report card grades in my district. All report card grades are determined by one test. Sound familiar? High stakes testing. This is true in every grade from kindergarten to 12th. Students have begun to openly question why they should even do it. I give the typical, well, everyone needs practice to get better, or to show me how I can better help you. But they don't care. Worst yet, 
is that parents are being trained that this is normal. It's not. Perfect practice makes perfect. We are letting kids settle for garbage practice, uninvested practice, reluctant practice. The students that thrive are those that are intrinsically motivated to do their best. Students who, who require that, that extrinsic motivator of a report card grade are now only motivated on that one test. So what are happening to their grades? Uh, the trend's going down. Why? Because every year, they know they don't have to give any effort on classwork. Who cares about that? It's not tested. I just have to try to do that one. Well, they're not mature enough to understand the consequences of their actions. They're not understanding that unless they dedicate their all, each and every assignment, to practice perfect, they're not going to be successful. What about policies? What about these political policies? Can they be the magic wand to fix it all? I'm not entirely convinced. I think politicians meddling in educational policy is what led us here. Maybe I'm wrong, and maybe they would help. But it's crucial to acknowledge that real change truly begins at home, and that's not something you can legislate. Yes, you heard it right. It starts with parenting. Engaged, supportive parents play a vital role in a child's educational journey. Now, I, I am going to expand on that in a future episode, but in the here and now. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So rather than stubbornly and stupidly continuing on this path down high-stakes standardized tests, let's embark on a collective effort to redefine how we approach education. And I would even say let's do that one family at a time. All right. As we steer our ship out of the stormy seas of standardized testing, I hope you found some shelter in the insights and perspectives shared today. We've navigated the treacherous waters of educators' unique challenges and peeked into the unconventional side hustles some teachers are driven to face in a, in a system that undervalues their worth. I implore you to be part of the change. Share your thoughts, engage in conversations about education, and most importantly, champion the cause of fair compensation and support for our educators. Let's break free again from constraints of outdated policies and embark on a journey to redefine education, one conversation at a time. Here's to a week with fewer meetings about meetings, an abundance of breakthrough moments in your classrooms, and the magical disappearance of administrative paperwork. Until the next policy change, this is Eduant, your refuge of educational sanity in the bureaucratic wilderness. Keep your grading swift and your coffee strong. Class dismissed.
Excuse me, Mr. Teacher. Hey, kiddo. Did you forget something? What can I help you with? Thank you. You are so welcome. 